Before we get started in this episode, a quick announcement. As you know, I'm very passionate about acceptance and commitment therapy, and I also run a busy practice in Canberra. We're currently looking for psychologists who are registered in Australia to join our team, who are also passionate about learning about ACT. We provide supervision on a group and individual basis and training around ACT. So if this is you, if you're interested, please express your interest at strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers. Look forward to hearing from you. And now back to this episode. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome back to Better Thinking. My name's Nesh Nikolic and my guest today is Professor Stephen Hinshaw. And I talked to him about his work in developmental psychopathology, clinical interventions with young people and addressing mental illness stigma in the community. Professor Stephen Hinshaw is a distinguished professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, and also professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the University of California, San Francisco. He received his BA from Harvard, his doctorate in clinical psychology from UCLA, and went on to a postdoctorate fellowship at the Langley Porter Institute of UC San Francisco. Professor Hinshaw is an international presence in clinical psychology with over 400 articles, chapters, and commentaries alongside authoring 13 books. His achievements are extensive, with him receiving a Distinguished Teaching Award in 2001, a Distinguished Scientist Award from the Society for a Science of Clinical Psychology in 2015, the James McKean Cattell Award from the Association for Psychological Science in 2016 for a lifetime of outstanding contribution to applied psychology research, and a Distinguished Scientific Contributions to Child Development Award in 2017 from the Society for Research in Child Development. Professor Stephen Hinshaw has a breadth of knowledge, and it was an absolute pleasure to spend some time talking to him. Ladies and gents, please welcome Professor Stephen Hinshaw. Steve, a big thank you for coming onto the show today. Thanks so much for having me on. Look, it's a real pleasure to have someone of of your caliber on on the show today to to talk about your um, you know great great and uh you know immense experience in developmental you know issues in psychology and you know also the stigma that that goes around that as as well so um you know i thought maybe it's a good place to start about you know what are the types of you know developmental issues that you've focused on and and why have you you know specifically looked at those so i'm interested in psychopathology mental disorder neurodevelopmental issues broadly, because I like to think broadly rather than narrowly, and sort of uh, putting both aspects of our talk together, I became interested initially because of family experiences growing up. My father would vanish literally into thin air for months, if at one point a year at a time, uh, and nobody knew where he was. It turns out that my mother was forbidden from saying that he was in mental hospitals. He was forbidden from talking about it by his own doctors. 
when he would when he asked about what what to say or not to say. Um, and so as I got into my adolescence and early adulthood, and as I'll talk about later in the podcast, once my dad revealed when I was a freshman in college that this was the reason why he was gone so much when I was a kid, I decided to pursue psychology. And I think I identified in many ways with kids who might feel lonely or uh, unsure of life or who might have some of the genes that would be responsible for their own mental or neurodevelopmental conditions. So the, the stigma aspects of my work and the developmental and clinical psychology aspects of my work really kind of come full circle and, and, and intersect uh, with each other. And so we'll talk more about family history and stigma uh, and all those essential uh, topics subsequently. But during college, and then I took three years out before going to grad school uh, to get a degree, a doctoral degree in clinical psychology, I uh, was a big brother and I taught in a prison and I was at a community mental health center, uh, aid with a psychiatrist and a clinical psychologist and a social worker. And I came to direct a residential summer camp program for kids with a range of neurodevelopmental disorders, uh, tried to help set up an, an alternative school for kids with such, con such conditions in the Boston, Massachusetts, uh, and the USA uh, school district it's around the time that public education for kids with disabilities was becoming mandatory. And to me, those kinds of issues in kids lie at the confluence of genetic vulnerability. We know that genes are responsible uh, very strongly for things like autism spectrum disorder and ADHD. We know that early trauma, which is so much inherited, it's an experience one has, can exacerbate that risk. And we also know that when a good diagnosis is made, both medication treatments and psychological, behavioral, cognitive, behavioral, and family treatments typically work best when put together. And it depends on the condition and depends on the timing and everything else. So because when I was young, I was in the dark. And then when I started to learn about my dad's experiences, I realized that he had been earlier in his life, not only misdiagnosed and terribly stigmatized, but either subject to psychological treatments only that had no hope of working or medications in the absence of psychosocial support, which really had no hope of working. So I'm an integrationist. I really psychologically and intellectually am interested in the confluence of biology and social experience. And at a very practical treatment level is how to examine biological, biologically based and psychosocially based treatments and see how their combination might really put a dent in the developmental trajectories that too often have gone astray and to try to get them back into a healthier, more competent range. Apologies for the, the the naive question, but I'd really like to take your or hear your take on it. Is what are the gaps that you are seeing when only one therapy is 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 being a provided? Um, you know what 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 do you see as being the you know main problem? And is is some of that also attached to the stigma because it's sometimes difficult to have a social psychosocial you know network as part of a, you know, a therapy or, or someone to go out and 
you know, the person who's feeling unwell, it's very hard for them to go out and instigate that, isn't it? Yeah. So I'm going to address this very important, certainly not a naive question at all, very essential question at two levels. First, conceptually, we go in swings and turns in psychiatry and social sciences and psychology. Problems in living, mental disorders are caused by poor parenting, environments, or back in the old days, evil spirits, or they're the result of genes. There's something wrong with your brain. And both of these are very reductionistic. The brain develops as a reflection of experience. The genes we're born with, embedded in our DNA, are switched on and off at various times in our life by the experiences we have. It's not one or the other, it's both in combination. Now let's go to the clinical, more individual level. If I have, as my dad had for his whole life, although misdiagnosed for 45 years, bipolar disorder, genes are very responsible for why some people have bipolar disorder and most people don't. And of course there's a spectrum, there's all sorts of range in between. So we started to believe that for schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and autism and ADHD, genes were the only thing that mattered. And there must be some defect in the brains of people with these conditions. Well, if that were the case, why would we still have autism or ADHD or bipolar or schizophrenia in modern society? Why wouldn't those conditions have bred themselves out of existence through natural selection? And the, the right answer is partial loadings of those genes, family members, first and second degree relatives, or at some periods of the ups and downs and cycles of these conditions, people can thrive and do well and have competencies. The most successful people in most countries we've ever studied are the first degree relatives of people with bipolar disorder. You've got some of the genetic loading, you've got some of the spark and maybe creativity and energy, but not the full loading that might cause suicidal depressions or mixed episodes, combining mania and, and, and depression. So again, at the individual level, we don't want to think that the only thing is, let's fix that aberrant brain. Well, Brains are the most complicated things we know of in the known universe. Trillions of synapses. There's not going to be a simple fix with one medication or brain stimulation. But we do know that the more serious the forms of neurodevelopmental disorder one has, or mental illness one has, medications and other biological interventions can provide a stable baseline against which and from which talk therapies and family therapies and support and educational counseling and vocational counseling, families getting on board with kids and teens to create a more stable environment. Together, we can create the conditions for recovery. One or the other usually isn't sufficient and fails to recognize and realize that we humans with our big brains uh, and our long periods of development require a whole lot of attention 
especially if some of the genetic tendencies aren't, aren't in the right direction, to build strengths and competencies and to promote recovery. So we have to think as integrationists, not reductionists. What do you think explains the increasing numbers? Uh, uh, and maybe that's not even valid itself, but uh, there, there, there seems to be a story that there are increasing numbers of you know, mental health difficulties, you know, whether that's here in Australia or, or, you know, in the States. I don't know whether that's an actual valid thing or not, or it's an over-diagnostic um, uh, problem. Um, what? Yeah. How do you see that space? So I'm going to answer it in two parts. For a long time, we thought that kids who behave badly were immoral, were defective in some way, or that their parents had inevitably raised them wrong. Those are all simplistic notions. We also don't have very good background or baseline data from 50 years ago, much less 100 or 1,000 years ago, on the prevalence of what these conditions were. So now that we've become more medicalized and more psychiatric, we see problems that used to be thought of as character flaws as potentially psychiatric conditions. So the, the whole social medical culture we have pulls for bad conduct being redefined as some sort of condition or illness. Now, there's a real temptation to say that every kid who's acting poorly has a brain flaw because then it takes poverty and trauma and abuse and other social determinants of health and mental health off the hook. It's all in aberrant brains. Well, how are brains formed? by the genes we have and the pruning of where we're all born with twice as many neurons as we'll have as when we're adults. And so the pro the product of development is pruning and forming synapses and connections to align the mind and brain with the outside world. So where does this leave us? We can't think that everything is a simple wiring problem in the brain or now with images, functional and structural magnetic resonance imaging, fMRI, that if we can just find the pathways in the brain that are aberrant, we, 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 aberrant, we can solve mental illness. We're humans. We're, we're in a very difficult time now, socioeconomically, politically, and coming out of the pandemic in the world. So despite the tendency for some countries, the U.S. in particular, to overdiagnose conditions like ADHD, although as we'll talk about soon, I hope, many countries, if not most, still underdiagnose girls because we know girls don't have ADHD, despite these historical and secular trends. We do know, and I'll speak specifically to the US now because it, it's uh, the, the numbers I know best. Into the 21st century, there are real not just over or misdiagnosed, rises in self-harm cutting, suicide, attempted suicide, especially in, in girls and, and, and young women. Substance abuse goes up and down. It's in kind of an upward phase now in the U.S. And 
coming out of the pandemic, which put a huge strain on schooling and achievement and social connections and families. Recent surveys by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in the U.S. show that over half of teenage girls are chronically worried, are chronically feeling that they're not worth it, and that up to 30% have seriously considered ending their lives. This is an epidemic. This isn't just we're kind of being too meddlesome and uh, peering into teenagers and especially teenage girls' lives. There's a crisis of confidence. There's a crisis of self-esteem with the inequities in society more fully pronounced than ever. If you're born into poverty, that's a huge risk factor. If you're born and in a family with more means, that's also a huge risk factor for unrealistic expectations. And the feeling that if you're not doing everything perfectly, especially if you're a girl, you're somehow failing. So across the socioeconomic spectrum, we're seeing, so just to be kind of concrete here for a minute, in the U.S., between March of 2020, when the lockdowns first started to occur, and about a year later, in adults, there were spikes in anxiety and depression. But by the following March, at a population level, most adults had kind of recovered, found their baseline. This is not true for kids and teens and young adults. The initial increase has remained on the rise, unabated. So that we're coming out of the pandemic at this point with kids having lost a half a year to a year of their academic achievement, struggling with whether relationships should be formed on social media or not. And again, for girls in particular, a feeling of having lost bearings, low self-esteem is a big predictor of all sorts of anxiety and depression and self-injury problems. And it is a real crisis, not an imagined one. And why in particular girls? Are we seeing more yeah. uh, more rates in girls than we're seeing boys, at least at the moment? So this is an issue I've been considering for the last 20 years. Don't get me wrong, boys have their problems. And there's people writing books and cultural treatises on the loss of masculinity, and boys are kind of a lost tribe. And there's some truth to that. But in a book I wrote 15 years ago called The Triple Bind, Saving Our Teenage Girls from Today's Pressures, I put together a theory that would explain not only why girls during the teen years show much more than boys rises in anxiety and depression and cutting and self-harm and, and, and binge eating, but why over the last 20, 30 years, those rises have risen. Why it's a secular trend. And so the quick thesis is that girls throughout most cultures and most of history are raised to be the nurturers and caregivers. They're going to be the moms of the future. So there's probably something kind of wrong with you if you're a girl and you're not nurturing and empathic. But in the last, since maybe the 60s in the U.S., women's rights movement, uh, equal protection laws, et cetera, et cetera. Over the last 50 years, girls uh, comprise now 60% of college students in the United States, males 40%. 
girls are getting into graduate and law and professional schools at higher rates than guys. Title IX provided, by law, equal funding for sports events for both boys and girls. So now, on top of the age-old dictum that girls must be compassionate and nurturant and, and, and caregivers, girls are now expected to be highly competitive and outperform boys athletically and academically. So it's a bind already. How do you win the sprint, but then pause to notice in the lane next to you, the girl has fallen? Well, you can't do both at the same time. It's hard to be perfectly competitive and perfectly compassionate at the same time. And then over the last decades, and again, it's focusing on the U.S., but certainly this is true elsewhere as well. If you're a girl, you're pretty much expected to do all of this effortlessly and looking in a very sexualized fashion. It's okay for a guy to be quirky and creative and grungy or what have you. But if a girl isn't empathic, nurturant, and competitive, and effortlessly sexualized, well, then there's something wrong with her. And girls know of these pressures and internalize this triple bind, as it's called, by feeling that they've somehow failed themselves and their families, leading to rumination and a kind of relentless cycle of self-doubt. When you add to that social media, where any faux pas you have may have made socially is now recorded forever, and lack of sleep with all these pressures, teens don't get enough sleep, and what does lack of sleep do? A whole lot of things, but one thing we know it does, from the research of my colleague here at Berkeley, Matt Walker, it emphasizes what you recall of negative events in your life at the expense of recalling positive events in your life. It's not just a memory problem that you don't remember as well the next day if you haven't slept. But both immediately and over time, sleep deprivation fuels a negative self-perception. So you put that together with the pandemic, and you put that together with the pressures to get into university in the United States, about the same number of slots, and a lot of schools failing, colleges failing because of the pandemic, but many more students applying, and this relentless pressure that you internalize if you don't feel you've been succeeding, I think is particularly damaging for girls' psyches. And the rates of, so let's just talk for a minute about self-harm. Two categories here. One is what we call non-suicidal self-injury. Could be cuticle picking, hair pulling or twirling on the mild side. It could be cutting a razor or a paperclip, bleeding in your skin, burning, banging. I mean, very serious self-mutilation, but without the express intent to die. It's a way of getting relief from psychological pain through physical pain maybe initially triggered by modeling. Oh, the other girls in middle school or secondary school are doing it. I, I should too. Maybe I'll get some attention. But over time, it's an ultimately futile exercise in poor self-regulation. And then on the other hand, 
recurrent suicidal thoughts or attempts or completed suicide. Now in the United States, girls and kids of color are rising faster than white kids. This is across all levels of the socioeconomic spectrum and rates in girls of both NSSI, non-suicidal self-injury and attempted suicide have been going up at very alarming rates. And so this is why I mentioned a few minutes ago, it's a crisis and it's disproportionately affecting girls. It kind of makes sense in, in the current social world, you know, for young people in particular girls, you know, with, who are living with these extremely high expectations to, you know, achieve academically or athletically, um, you know, socially, you know, combined with, as you say, needing to maintain this nurturing and compassion and care for, for others around them. And that, you know, third, third one being the, uh, you know, maintaining a high level of attractiveness, you know, all, all the time to, yeah. you know, keep up with, with, with their peers and, you know, find a partner, extremely high demands that, that, you know, in, in many ways maybe haven't been experienced before by, uh, by women that, that, you know, at least on a population level that all of right. these things are now, uh, you know, in, in public, you know, they're being expressed by, you know, their peers and, and, and broadcast all the time with social media, which effectively, yeah. you know, in some sense fueling this. Um, uh, is there a way to to describe these di- differently? Because that, that almost seems very normal to, to then hear that 60% of, you know, girls are chronically worried. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean it's, I, it's not a surprise when you yeah. put those together. And it's one thing to be chronically worried. I mean, the world's a tough place. Uh, You know, at a global level, we've got more wealth than we ever had, but it's so inequitably distributed and Mm -hmm. um, social media and the media in general show the disparities all of the time. Um, We shouldn't be shocked, but what may be shocking is the means by which too many teens and young adults and girls in particular are engaging at the cost of their bodies and their psychological health to cope with this. It it may seem like a temporary relief to see blood trickling down your arm, which you then later cover over with a, a long sleeve t-shirt so that or, or sweatshirt so nobody can see it um, because of all the shame and stigma. But the relief is short-lived. Mm-hmm. The conflicts in your family, in your life the problems that you may have in living up to these idealized expectations that no one can really succeed in are extremely costly. And then the whole norm changes whereby it must be okay if I'm the peer of a girl committing such behaviors um, uh, in middle school or high school. The spiral effect is it models that it's normative to, to, to show such depression, anxiety, self-destructive behaviors. And it's going to take a couple of things to disengage us from this. I mean, some of it is social standards. We shouldn't necessarily have every course graded in secondary school. The, The grade point averages of freshmen, your first year students getting into UC Berkeley, where I teach, 
for most of my effort is above a 4.0 because you get extra credit for advanced placement classes. And so the average GPA for an incoming first year is about a 4.4. Well, that means you can never get a B and you've got to get an A or A plus, not only in your regular classes, but your AP classes. I mean, impossible expectations. We also need somehow to enforce deconnect, disconnect from the screens and get sleep. I mean, it sounds simple, but it's uh, at a population level. Every hour of sleep deprivation is uh, a trigger for uh, motor vehicle accidents, alcohol use, stress, cardiovascular uh, difficulties. And third, in some interesting studies conducted over the last 20 years in the U.S., by our colleague at Arizona State, Sonia Luthar, L-U-T-H-A-R, who had long studied kids uh, of substance abusing parents or kids in poverty, but found comparison groups, control groups, if you will, back in the East Coast when she was still there, of more affluent kids. It turns out that the more affluent kids have different risks but in some ways, even higher risk for depression and anxiety than kids of, of poverty because of these impossible expectations. And these kids in interviews that she would conduct would say things like, my family values me only to the extent that I do well in school. We don't have meals together. Family connected, family disconnectedness isn't the main cause of these problems but it might help to be a solution. And this is one of the themes that I was alluding to before. Just because there's a strong biological risk for autism or ADHD or bipolar disorder or serious depression, doesn't mean that the only way of dealing with it is through biology or medications, et cetera. How the family and school and community supports and promotes strengths can go a long way to treatment, even though the family and school and community weren't the direct causes. So we've got to take away some of the blame, but not the responsibility for care. Mm -hmm. And then the final thing I'll say is this triple bind idea we've been talking about for the last few minutes. What if you're a kid, a girl in particular, who has challenges with self-regulation and isn't that well organized and doesn't read facial cues well? or with autism spectrum symptoms, um, is more comfortable with mechanical things or objects rather than the messy world of interpersonal relationships. How do you mount the challenges of the triple bind if you're kind of coming out with strike one or strike two with some symptoms of ADHD or autism spectrum, et cetera? So the neurodevelopmental conditions, when they meet head on the impossible societal expectations, yield stigma, and especial problems uh, for girls with these conditions. So in our own follow-up study, the Berkeley Girls with ADHD Longitudinal Study, to our knowledge, the largest prospective lifelong study of girls with ADHD anywhere, our comparison group had many of the same issues with self-harm, attempted suicide, 
throughout adolescence and adulthood as the girls with ADHD. We followed from the ages of about eight or nine now into their 30s. But if you had early ADHD, the rates went up by 250 to 300%. And if you had ADHD and exposure to physical or sexual abuse or neglect, the rates went up 50% beyond that. It's not either or, it's both and. Neurodevelopmental challenges, early traumatic events, an unresponsive society expecting with this relentless, subtle pressure, kind of a hidden pressure to be perfect all the time, it's a recipe for the crisis we're experiencing. In part of the longitudinal study, uh, uh, what, what, what are the, if you don't mind me asking, what are some of the uh, measures that were looked at um, over that period of time? Because that's quite a significant uh, period of time, which you know makes it amazing from a research perspective. Well, when we started the study back in the 90s, our team wrote a grant to the National Institute of Mental Health to do a deep dive into girls with ADHD. It took a revision to get it just right got a very good score, and we initiated our summer camp programs to get to know the girls and their families very, very well. And over five years, 10 years, 16 years, now 25 years later, we focused first, of course, on the symptoms of ADHD. Many of them apparently decrease over time. You're not as fidgety and squirmy as you were at 18 as you were at eight, or 28 at 18. But the underlying executive problems, planning, remembering things in, in a sequence, organizing yourself, they remain well behind those executive functions of, of girls without ADHD. Academically, in part because of these executive dysfunctions, the girls with ADHD, many of them did graduate from secondary school, but the real problems begin with post-secondary. Community <laughs> colleges, four-year universities, and then with initial jobs, uh, getting fired earlier, having problems with bosses. Self-regulation for girls with ADHD, in many ways, there's a bigger premium on that when you're 25 than at 15 or 5, because now you're expected to be independent, and, and many girls with ADHD just don't, don't have those skills. Another measure was a very simple one. Have you ever been pregnant? Was it planned or unplanned? How many unplanned pregnancies have you had? 450% more unplanned pregnancies in the girls with ADHD than in the neurotypical comparison sample. Poor planning, not using birth control, maybe having sex while using drugs and being more impulsive. And so now we can see why there might be problems into further generations. The genes are passed forward from generation to generation, but with an unplanned pregnancy uh, that does uh, lead to childbirth, there's probably not going to be a supportive home environment. So across many domains, and I'll mention another one that's, that's um, you know, these are not pleasant statistics, but we, we feel compelled to talk about them. The girls with ADHD, by the time they're in their 20s, were three times, 300% more likely to have experienced sexual assault or intimate partner violence than the neurotypical comparison group. So in 
childhood, we think of ADHD as being fidgeting, squirming. It's kind of the, the middle-class boy phenomenon. That's a myth. ADHD exists in girls. There's more in boys for a lot of reasons, but it exists in both sexes. In girls, it tends to be the more inattentive, executive dysfunctional, quieter form that may actually lead to more problems later on in relationships, in post-secondary education, in jobs. And it's accompanied by a sense that I'm not really doing as well as other girls. And this internalization we think is a big trigger for the high rates of non-suicidal self-injury and attempted suicide we've seen in our sample. Mm -hmm. Is there anything to say about how the world is organized these days that contributes to, you know, these attentional difficulties and and, and or, or, you know, exploring it in, in that way? And I know obviously, you know, we've discussed that some of it's going to be genetic, some of it's going to be about how our brain organizes itself right. with, the, with the environment. Um, uh, uh, but I, you know, just thinking about myself and, and yes, you know, in, in many ways I hold some of those traits, um, but life is just so busy. There, there, yeah. there, there is so yeah. many things and probably because I've created it that way as well, it might not need to necessarily be so busy. The world's complicated. Social media, online education. We all have more ADHD than a generation or two ago because we don't read books. <laughs> we read 140 character tweets, et cetera, et cetera. But that's different from saying that society is totally responsible for ADHD. When societal standards shift, people have to adjust. When did ADHD, it wasn't called that back then. It was called a moral defect or hyperkinesis or minimal brain dysfunction. When did it first come into the public's attention 150 or 200 years ago? When compulsory education became law. Before that, only the kids of royalty or the rich had to go to school. Now, with everybody in school, the about 5 to 6% of kids with largely genetic underpinnings that make it hard for them to regulate their attention and to get intrinsically motivated for stuff that's hard for any brain to do, like learn to read. We all were born to talk as humans. We've only been reading since cuneiform a few thousand years ago. Compulsory education brought into being learning disabilities and ADHD because now exposed because of the changed social conditions of schooling, mandatory schooling, they were triggers for recognition. Now, in this century, the online multitasking, less sleeping, never forget a social faux pas you've made nature of, of social media, puts everybody at risk for having to do things faster and faster, more and more, never sleep, uh, et cetera, et cetera. New York's a city that never sleeps. The world now is a world that never sleeps because you're expected to be on top of everything. It's a, it's, a, it's a sin if you don't respond to an email, et cetera, et cetera. Um, when all of this is put together, it's going to put even more of a premium on people who don't regulate themselves so well. Now, in some ways, the world of media and social media puts kids with ADHD a little bit of an advantage because 
you don't have to pay attention for hours at a time and you can change gears. So, so you know, can produce some strengths. But the problem is that without underlying organizational training and abilities, without medication, if it's needed, kids with ADHD may look like they're doing metal better in this hyper uh, social media world, but they're still falling further and further behind. Mm. We shift gears a little bit over to the uh, stigma uh, space. I, I I know that recently I, um, you know, I've, I've been thinking so much about this great challenge that I think psychology has, and and I'm sure that psychiatry shares it, and other mental health professions do as well. Where we do tend to very easily and comfortably, and almost have a leaning towards providing diagnoses Uh, but i don't think it's common practice for us to remove diagnoses like it's it's not something that i've heard you know is being trained or even discussed very often where someone talks with their with, with their client about no longer meeting a criteria, but quite often, obviously, you know, mainly probably because clients are leaning in that direction and looking for a, a name, you know, right. for for what they can pin on on, on themselves. But I, I I find that there's almost uh, you know a, a a great challenge and um, pain point for me um, in in seeing that people are holding labels often for a lifetime um, when. You know, I'd question whether they even meet the criteria in the first place. <clears throat> this is one of the huge issues of our age, and it has been since the, the dawn of medicine millennia ago. Let's start with what we think would be a very much less stigmatized. Let's start with cancer. If you have a diagnosis of cancer, and you get radiation or chemotherapy or gene therapy in some forms of cancer these days, treatments are getting more sophisticated. You may be in recovery, but are you ever free of cancer? What about nulls take a more kind of, what about substance abuse? You become addicted to certain substances and you go into remission through treatment of some kind. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Are you ever free of it? Now let's talk about you know mental disorders. Can you be cured of bipolar disorder or depression? I mean, these are hot topics. If I sometime in my life, let's say before the age of 40, have one episode of pretty severe, what we call major depressive disorder, not only am I sad, but my appetite is off, sleep is disrupted, motivation is low, I believe that I'm worthless, I consider suicide, What are the odds once that episode is cleared, either through medications or therapy or or just through the natural course, what are the odds that I'll have another serious episode of depression? About 50%. If I've had a second, the odds of having a third now increase to about 70%. So many people have one episode of depression. It's scary. There there might have been suicidal behaviors. Half are at risk for further. And the more episodes you've had, it's almost always your body and mind getting trained to make you more at risk. 
This is even more true for bipolar disorder. So how do we think about it? Are depression and bipolar disorder illnesses like cancer? Well, cancer, we have an objective test. We can tell if your cells are proliferating. We can scan the brains of people with major depression or bipolar disorder, and at a group average level, there may be more or less activity of certain neurotransmitters or certain brain regions or pathways involved, but it's not infallible. We don't have a biomarker for depression or bipolar disorder. That's why they're psychiatric conditions rather than neurological or medical. We have a biomarker for cancer. So it's inevitable in many ways that mental conditions are going to receive more stigma because if we can't find that definitive evidence, people must be imagining or they must be malingering or not trying hard enough. I want to go back to cancer for a minute. Today, around the world, cancer is a cause. In the National Football League in the United States, one Sunday out of every fall, these incredible athletes, fast and strong and intent on winning, wear pink knee socks during a game in support of breast cancer research. What color knee socks do they wear in support of mental health research? Well, I'm sorry, it's a trick question. There is none. Cancer in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, even 60s in the U.S. If your uncle, your great-grandpa, great-grandmother, great-aunt died of cancer, your family never put in the obituary died of cancer. In medicine, cancer was known to be a psychosomatic illness brought on because you'd lost a will to live. You've kind of given up and those proliferating tumor cells took over. You know, it's a way out of date now thinking of it. Very stigmatizing view. But it wasn't then. Cancer is now a cause. Communities support breast cancer, the number one most prevalent cancer in women. Prostate cancer, the number one leading prevalence well, cancer in men. People send flowers if you're in the hospital for your chemotherapy. What do you get sent if you're in the hospital for major depression? Nothing, because people don't want to shame you, and they're too ashamed to say, "Well, my God, you you just you were too weak. You 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 have depression. Like why can't you just pick yourself up by your bootstraps?" So we have this view that a mental can conditions, because there's not a biomarker, they're not quite real. They're at this boundary between brain and mind. It must be you haven't tried hard enough. We're kind of out of, for the most part, evil spirits or animal spirits. But there's something flawed about you or your family. Even when we now realize that the heritability, the percentage of risk for bipolar disorder why some people have and some don't, is, is 85% on the genetic side. ADHD, 75 to 80% on the genetic side. Well, that should absolve the blame, but it means, well, maybe your family's flawed. So when it's a mental or psychological condition, it's sort of like a double whammy. There still must be something wrong with you. And even if we recognize that there's brain underpinnings and genetic liabilities, 
Well, you're carrying a genetic flaw. You're not even fully human. So stigma is this ugly term. It originates in both ancient Greek and Latin languages. And stigma is literally a brand, a burn mark on your neck or wrist, midsection, so that society knows you're different. In ancient Greece, if you were at the agora, the marketplace, agoraphobia literally means fear of the shopping mart or the, the marketplace. How would I know if I were in Athens, down, downtown shopping, that you had actually fought for Sparta or might have been a former slave? Well, I wouldn't know because it's not recognizable, except I see the brand under your toga or on, on your skin. Stigma was a literal mark of infamy or shame. Most stigma today is psychological and inferred. Now, if you were in a concentration camp during World War II, you had either burned or tattooed on your left wrist a number. That was a literal stigma. Many countries in the 80s branded people who were HIV positive. So everyone would know to stay away. But most stigma today isn't a physical brand, it's a psychological brand. We know about your type, your religion, uh, your, your nationality, your schizophrenia, your eating disorder in your family, et cetera, et cetera. Stigma, in many ways, and I firmly believe this, so bipolar disorder, Maybe people can be creative and have spark initially. The suicide rate is astronomical. Schizophrenia can be chronic cycles uh, leading to, in some cases, a, a very chronic pattern of disability. ADHD, we've talked about, has a lot of impairments associated with it. You know, we haven't talked much about strengths, but they're there too. Having a mental or neurodevelopmental disorder means accepting a label means getting treatment, means overcoming a lot of shame, etc. But the stigma that says you're not deserving of a job, you shouldn't be in school. There's something wrong with you if you have ADHD that you simply are unmotivated or not trying hard enough. To me, the stigma is worse than the condition because the stigma predicts that society has given up on the person and it predicts self-stigma. The person's kind of given up on herself or himself. Stigma may have evolutionary roots. We're a very social species as humans. If we weren't, we'd have never survived on the savannas of Africa all those tens of thousands of years ago. We're not that fast. We're not that strong. So we got to bond together. But there's probably, through our evolutionary history, some now built-in prohibitions about being too social. What if you befriend someone who's really ill, contagious? We'll think of the pandemic. Well, you got to stay clear. Or what if you're too close to someone who's going to, they have low social capita, capital and they're going to take resources from you, panhandlers, et cetera. Stay clear. Or the third stigma module posed by evolutionary psychology is somebody very different in skin color or custom. It's a different tribe. Stay clear. So we humans walk this balance point between being very social but being wary of some differences. So we all stigmatize to some extent, but when the stereotypes become prejudices, we don't like that other group, 
and then it becomes discrimination. What happened in the Middle Ages for people with serious mental illness? They were banished to the countryside to live like animals. And then we had the era of huge snake pit institutions in much of the modern world, where, like my father, people were crowded into terribly confining spaces that in many places were a lot like the concentration camps of Hitler. And now we have community care, but we haven't funded it, leaving a huge homeless population with substance abuse and serious mental disorders that we can't force into getting treatment uh, any longer uh, under the guise of human rights. Stigma is still very strong against people with ADHD, autism, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, PTSD, major depression, et cetera. Because we're still not sure if we can trust those people who are different from us and threatening, potentially violent, all the stereotypes that go along with it. We're beginning to see in the States and in other countries the beginnings of a sea change. For the first time since these measures have been collected for the last 60, 70 years, people are much more willing to befriend or be close with someone with depression than than since since the 40s when we started doing research on this. But the stigma against addiction and substance use and schizophrenia still remains high because I think of the, 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 the psychological or physical threat. Young people, Gen Zers, people who uh, don't have the hair color I do, right? You know, the, the, the kids we taught, we do a lot of work in high schools in, in uh, with Bring Change to Mind, an organization I, I consult with scientifically, Glenn Close's organization, to get high school kids to promote destigmatization in their schools and communities. But the kids in these clubs um, say, well, we don't believe in stigma. That's your generation. Mm. And there's the good side of social media where disclosure and difference is part, part of the, the everyday environment. So, it's going to take a lot of work to continue to destigmatize. It's going to be effective treatment. It's going to be enforcement of anti-discrimination laws. It certainly has to be more sensitive media coverage, which in some ways is better than 50 years ago. But the predominant headline is still of a school shooter or a homeless person or someone who's violent and incompetent. Uh, and it's going to change everyday social interactions in schools and in the workplace to be more accepting of a somewhat wider range of behavior. It certainly seems like, at least here in Australia, if I can <clears throat> talk about with, with clients that I've seen, is that with the prevalence of you know, mental health being discussed in the community and certainly with young people, the prevalence of uh, actively seeking support with psychologists and seeing their GP and their school counselor and the like, yeah. there are so many kids that it's part of their vocabulary. Um, and, yeah. you know, because of that, it's, it's, it's almost become a part of you know, a daily uh, understanding of, of the world. And, and it seems like with that adoption of mental well-being part of being part of a conversation, it's normalized it. Um, yeah. uh, and and I suppose with normalizing it, uh, it's more and more people are in that uh, group. Um, and we still see great functionality um, with, you know, people who have been labeled. And 
in there lies, I suppose, part of the the challenge that I experience of of the functionality uh, among many being very high while they're still carrying around a label. Um, but maybe yeah. these days the label's not holding nearly as much and and maybe it's in actual fact the functionality that we can all see is where the stigma remains is that uh, where we can where it's observable where the functionality is extremely low um, because the, the 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 well-being is so poor that it, it does affect you know the social the academic the the you know, personal hygiene the capacity to order their lives and stay regulated and do you know socially appropriate um, you know, interactions with their peers to maintain relationships when those things fracture is probably where the stigma um, is built most. I, I agree. I mean, someone has schizophrenia still for me. I mean, I consider myself an anti-stigma researcher and advocate, but I still have that image that formed when I was a kid that someone with schizophrenia is scary and they hear voices and they're irrational, probably violent. Most people with diagnoses of mental and neurodevelopmental conditions function, quote, typically or normally much of the time. Most people with treatment recover. Doesn't mean they're cured forever. It's like cancer. You go into relapse, you get more treatment. I mean, but we still tend to think that it must be your fault or your family's fault for co-creating those genes when it's not validated with as, as purely biological and when it seems as though you could control it. So ADHD, you think, well, that's it's not a severe schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. Why would anybody stigmatize somebody with ADHD? Well, ADHD at a neural level isn't just about inattention. Many people with ADHD hyperfocus. They can pay attention for hours at a time with something they really like and enjoy and are intrinsically motivated for. ADHD is a condition where it's very hard to regulate your attention and motivation when the situation changes and it becomes more rote or harder. But if the very essence of ADHD is consistent inconsistency, what do most observers think? Well, if you could hold it together during algebra, why not in English? If you got along well with a boss on Tuesday, why'd you have that blow up on Thursday? When the attribution is, is that the person just really isn't trying hard and that just through sheer will, they could do it. It's like, um, you, you know, think of it, you know, it's a, it's a common metaphor, but uh, if I'm wearing my glasses for reading or driving and, and you say, why don't you just try harder? You could really see if you just try. You know, we think, well, that's ridiculous. It, you know, my optic nerve or my retina is, you know, compromised. But when it's behavior and emotion that are the hallmark symptoms, we're all born and bred to believe that we can all control our behavior and emotions at all times. Now, that's not to say that someone with ADHD or schizophrenia or PTSD um, can't control their emotions. That's what therapy is about. It's about finding ways to regulate and showing strengths. So it's, again, it's a both and, not either or. What is your hope for the future with, with how professionals talk about you know, mental 
health and and how we address this space of stigma because yeah. the 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 one thing that i think is clear that no one can deny is that uh being human is the psychological condition and you know right. because we are human you know there is great variety and in the course of a lifetime many of us are going to face incredible challenges and and some of those are going to knock us about others um you know will be because of physical health and that will knock us about for others it'll be psychological you know uh health like some of the biological ones um that um uh you know we've discussed here as well what what do you see for yeah, well, how would you like to see the future and how, how do we as as you know mental health professionals do do our work, you know, more thoughtfully to to improve how, how the world might might view this? Well, I've got a couple of answers. Number one, we should imitate young people. In the United States, the Pew PEW Charitable Trust, among other things, does surveys, the Pew data sets, every year, random cross samples of American public views on uh, integration, racially, gay marriage, mental health. In 2000, about 35 or 36% of Americans were in favor of gay marriage. And by 2018, the last time I checked the data pre-pandemic, that had gone up from just over a third to Uh, close to two-thirds. Within under 20 years, this is a sea change in terms of attitudes. And if you look, you go into the fine print on the websites, so they age stratify these data. It's driven by people under 30. Young people are saying gay marriage is okay. It's not a sin to be gay or lesbian, et cetera, et cetera. We're finding the same thing in the U.S. National Stigma Survey headed up by my colleague at Indiana University, the sociologist Bernice Pesco Salido, who published just over a year ago these data I mentioned a a few seconds ago about Americans are now much more accepting than they were even 10 years ago of being close to someone with depression. If you go to the cross-sections, that big shift is driven largely by people under 30. So the hope is, by actively promoting the way we do with our high school clubs and bring change to mind, giving in 500 high schools around the U.S., sky's the limit with more funding and getting these things going. Young people's influence can go to their teachers and school administrators and families and communities at large. Because young people, on average, want to be more authentic and don't believe in some of these false boundaries about socially normed behavior that that we have for a long time. So that's number one. Let's follow young people. Number two, we have to change the social norms. I get my car tuned up every now and then. I get my teeth checked. But if I go and see a shrink, there's something wrong with me. I'm flawed. I'm weak. I must not be self-reliant. I mean, just think of the talk about a stigmatizing term. What does it shrink mean? It's a head shrinker. Someone who's going to shrink your head. I mean, so we even have this evil connotation around being a therapist, psychologist or psychiatrist. 
if I had one thing to say, it would be checking up on your psychological health, your coping with stress, your mental health, is a sign of strength, not weakness. So I have colleagues who are sports psychologists for some of the professional teams and various sports in the United States. And one thing that's coming out is that with uh, the pro athletes, uh, train all the time and you know just a slight kink in the armor could be an injury and you're out for a season. So every few months you have your orthopedic checkup. And you have the back specialist come in. So what we're trying to do now, and Sarah Hickman, who's the team psychologist for the Los Angeles Clippers, part of our Bring Change to Mind scientific advisory team, they now talk about a checkup from the neck up or a neck up checkup. Part of your evaluation as a pro athlete is you talk to the social worker or psychologist, and how's your stress? How about those depression symptoms that we all have from time to time? If you don't get those things checked on, you won't be your top performance, just the way you have to have your bones and your muscles and tendons checked on too. If we could somehow make it part of the social norms, that just as you put it a few minutes ago, we're all human. We live in incredibly stressful times. The social disparities on our planet are never more have never been in more sharp relief. Climate change is on many people's minds. If you live in a coastal area, how long will you or your kids or your grandkids be able to live there? Why wouldn't it be valuable? The way you get your car tuned up or checked on to do the same for yourself, not because you're a weak person, but actually you're a strong enough person to say, maybe I need a little more alignment. <laughs> not just alignment of my wheels, but alignment of my mind and expectations and coping skills. Now, that doesn't mean that we all conform to an inhumane society. We have to have systems changes too. Young people normalizing that it's a sign of strength, not weakness, to do a neck up checkup and working to make sure that the evidence-based treatments we have out there Sometimes it is medication, even though, especially for kids, there's still the stereotypes that you're poisoning kids' brains, et cetera, et cetera. We don't think that it's unethical to give chemotherapy for cancer when it's indicated, but we still think it's unethical or wrong to give an antidepressant to an adult with, with major depression or a mood stabilizer to someone with bipolar or a stimulant to a kid with ADHD. They're not cures. They're not everything. They work best by far when combined with psychological treatments. But even if you're motivated, even if you want to get care, many rural areas in the U.S. have, in certain counties, no psychologists or psychiatrists. Zero. And in the major urban areas, the waiting lists are a year to two to three long. We don't have an equitable system of health care coverage. And... Uh, Countries like Australia, from at least my stereotype, do a better job of that. Is it perfect? No. We still spend in the U.S. per capita, given the number of people with cancer and the funding for the National Cancer Institute, and compared to the number of people with mental health conditions and the National Institute for Mental Health, mental health is still far behind. 
It's fascinating. I know that you know I'm I'm biased, and 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 you know it sounds like you are as well in terms of we can see the value of psychology. That that yeah. you know it's it it's you know and and I think it's not not just biased because we work in in in, in the field. I think there is uh, yeah great value that you know is so yeah you know, uh, demonstrated economically from a social perspective from you know, outcomes uh, you know across. You know many domains on a community level as well. You know, and 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 breaking stigma, I think, is so important that we can go out and and you know yeah. uh, talk about just our well-being. You know, period. I mean, people don't even necessarily even talk about their their physical well-being very much. The moment it's in an area that is a little bit awkward, um, we don't talk about it. I know, for example, in in, in Australia, a huge campaign about trying to get you know women to do their own. Um, you know, breast checks for uh, you know, for 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 cancer, and you know how to how to do that, you know, and that's that's only because it's in an awkward area, you know. And people yeah. don't find it difficult to say, you know, check check, you know, your you know arm or something, or right. you know, your glands around your neck or something. You know, we, we don't see them as being intimate places, and and and, right. and so it's quite a yeah, it has stigma immediately attached to it. It's scary to talk about. It's it, it's right. something that we we might be ashamed of. It's um, controversial. It's dangerous. It's shameful. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And I think you know have, having having a space where psychology is adopted as as a norm rather than just for people who are doing you know who, who are doing it tough. You know, if you're unwell if you're seeing a psychologist rather than in actual fact. You know, uh, we might have to change the the language that you know a lot of people do. They say, "I'm going to go see an executive coach," for example. Right. Well, you know, many psychologists do that service as well, which is you what? know, kind of starts with what brings you here today and how can I help you, right? <clears throat> uh, I mean, you're exactly right. And too many physical and mental health professionals, back in the old days, explicitly now more implicitly, the training education is. We're healthy. The people we see are sick. We're knowledgeable. They're ignorant. We're the experts. They're the naive people who need to follow our directions rather than a collaborative stance of recovery. Rather than providing, I mean, there's a famous work done by Arthur Kleinman, the Harvard anthropologist, you know, decades ago, looking at schizophrenia, highly heritable, present around the world. And who had the best outcomes for schizophrenia? People living in rural India or Africa, where there's no medication and there's no diagnostic labels. Why? Because it was rather expected that young men in particular, some young women, mid to late adolescents are going to have a period of irrationality. Run them up in the Philippines, et cetera, et cetera. But then... When that period is over or there's a remission, there's a place to live and there's a job and maybe continued schooling, as opposed to the super competitive West, where once you've fallen off that track, buddy, you can't get back on. So it's social and community support as well as individual treatment support. There's also a lot of pressure around treatment. It, it kind of says what you're experiencing right now is wrong. So we need to remove symptoms. We need to That's go out and stop you from feeling these things or having these, you know, visions or whatever it might be. And so, you know, the the tension, the friction that that creates versus, you know, a little bit more of a, 
nurturing and time-based you know plan which kind of says these things are going to change because we know that's how you know states you know our, our mental state works that with nurturing and maybe some compassion and understanding and guidance and support for those around as well we do see these things subside as, as well and they move they're organic you know it's not you know it's not a, a, a one one sort of experience for the rest of your life it 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 is a you know moving organism and i think you know stigma kind of grabs one moment and says that's wrong get rid of it it's unpleasant one moment is wrong one symptom class is wrong i mean people are wired and raised some are more sensitive than than others if you're extremely sensitive you're probably going to be more depressed because the world can be a pretty depressing place is the goal to treat people with major depression, to take away their sensitivity? No. The goal is to let's help regulate sleep. You're in a really tough space now. Maybe medication will get that serotonin balance back. And then through cognitive behavioral therapy, or if you've got more emotion dysregulation, dialectical behavior therapy, to find ways of coping. For people with schizophrenia or psychotic forms of bipolar disorder, delusional thinking or hearing of voices may come back throughout the repeated cycles. People who are successfully treated will often say, especially with schizophrenia, it's not that the voices have completely gone. I just don't pay as much attention to them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm just not as guided by them. I have other things that are more fulfilling in life. So it's not that every symptom of mental disorder is evil and we have to remove it it's a way of living with, accepting, coping with, and transcending. It's so interesting. I've always thought about it in, in that way as well, particularly because schizophrenia is something we can point to so clearly and the, you know, the, the frightening nature of seeing something that others can't see. Yeah, Interestingly, yeah. that happens to, I would say, all of us you know, quite, quite often. You know, um, we could talk about young people where they think, for example, the entire world doesn't like them or rejects them or whatever it might be. And unfortunately the whole, well, sorry, my apologies. Fortunately, the world doesn't see that. And, and that kid is loved and, and, and liked, but at least in their eyes, all they can see is that, you know, they're being rejected and that they're different and, and so right. on. You're part That's of the right. teenage angst, but we don't go out and say they're delusional. We just say, gosh, they're going through a tough time because they're, you know, a 16 year old boy or 16 year old girl. Uh, we kind of make an allowance for that. We allow for it. We give it time. We don't. We don't try. Give it time. We give it, it respect. When yes. my dad was sixteen, back in the nineteen thirties, in Pasadena, California, his mom had died when he was three. His dad remarried. His stepmother physically and sexually abused him. Not the other boys in the home. He was the youngest of the original four boys. Very bright family. Very religious family. And at age 16, he started to hear voices telling him that he was the chosen individual on earth to stop the world from the growing threat of Hitler and Mussolini, the fascists. The voices became so pronounced that one dawn, after wandering the streets of Pasadena for about two or three nights in a row, he climbed up to the roof of the house and took flight because he was sure he could fly. He had sprouted wings. And this would send a message to the free world's leaders to save the, the save the free world from the fascists. Well, he crashed to the pavement below, uh, had a concussion, broke his wrist, survived. And 
he was immediately diagnosed with chronic schizophrenia because in the United States at the time, any voice hearing or delusion was a sign that you had an underlying schizophrenia. Bipolar disorder really wasn't counted as anything in the U.S. at that time. And his first six-month hospitalization, he believed that the food had been poisoned at the adult mental hospital, mm. um, and he lost 70 pounds and nearly starved to death. But he came back. His cycle ended, this kind of mania of grandiosity and depression, and then the mixture of the energy of the mania and the depression and hopelessness of the depression, you know, a mixed episode. And he went on and became a philosopher, studied in grad school with Albert Einstein and Bertrand Russell at Princeton. Great things in his life, yet other episodes would seemingly come out of the blue, and he was placed in some of the country's worst mental hospitals that were likened to concentration camps by people who had witnessed the liberation of the camps and had visited some of America's worst hospitals. Once I was 18 and dad pulled me into a study my first spring break home from college and told me, this is why I was away so much when you were young. My own doctor told me that if I told you and your sister or your mother did about my schizophrenia, you'd be permanently destroyed. We were forbidden from other mentioning the topic. Gosh. The doctor's orders in the 50s were mental illness is so toxic. If children learn of it, they'll be destroyed. So in my book from a few years ago, Another Kind of Madness, where I chronicle all this, I take a little aside in a passage and say, well, what, what would we today say about the oncologist who says to the mom or dad with breast or prostate cancer or what have you, if your children ever learn of your cancer, it's so toxic, they'll be permanently destroyed. You're forbidden from talking about it. Well, we'd sue the oncologist for malpractice. Because family support is part of the treatment. But until recently, mental illness, even by the psychiatric profession, was deemed so shameful, you couldn't even talk about it. So this is how far we have to go. Mm. So guess what? After that first 45-minute talk with my dad, when I was back in the Midwest, he taught at Ohio State, and so did my mom did before I went back east to finish my first year of college, I decided to change my major to psychology. And to work with kids who felt lonely and kind of displaced and then maybe learn about genes and treatments and became a clinical psychologist. So a lot of people in the field come from personal and family experiences, which doesn't mean you can't be objective if you're a provider or a researcher, but it might provide some real good motivation for getting to the bottom of the mental health crisis we're in. Steve, it's beautiful to come full circle to to you know acknowledge both the pain and suffering of the human condition and see that there are some categories that we can see that are repeated in in in, in our community and at the same time uh normalize it and validate it and see space for which you know some some uh, uh you know beautiful things can come from as well and it's not something to to push away but rather that we can relate with it in a very different way um and and yes some of it is unwanted uh but a lot of life there are many unwanted challenges as as, as well and and how we approach it how we relate to it um you know especially in early days 
is 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 very important and obviously you know some of our youth is starting to do that quite quite naturally with no training which is lovely there's a different different way of of, of relating before we uh finish up can i just ask you know maybe for for our listeners in terms of um, you know where people can maybe follow up on on your work find out more about um you know part of our, our discussion or you know even beyond that because i know that you're very well um uh, written and you've got lots of books um and and and, and papers and the like so where, where can our sort of readers continue this conversation so uh, my lab at university of california berkeley is called my last name steve hinshaw hinshaw lab so go to www.hinshawlab.edu and you'll maybe after a click or two find uh the students and trainees in the lab and the alums and some of the work we're doing, uh, I would urge people to go to bringchangetomind.org, bringchange, numeral two, mind, which is the anti-stigma work we're doing with young people around the country, and we hope to expand. Um, Australia has a lot of good websites. The United States National Institute of Mental Health has a lot of good websites. The problem, of course, with surfing the web is you you get a lot of dis and misinformation too. So one of the things you have to do as a consumer is what are the latest fad treatments for autism and schizophrenia versus what's the reality? And the mm -hmm. reality to a point that you made midway through and that I've made a, a little bit implicitly, I don't want to make it explicit now, is people with neurodevelopmental conditions, mental conditions, quote unquote, we're all human. The worst aspect of stigma is, what's what Hitler did? Because remember, in the camps were not just Jewish individuals and Roma gypsies, but gay and lesbian individuals and those with mental deficiencies, intellectual disabilities, and, and mental disorders. They were vermin. They weren't even humans. They weren't even mammals. They were insects. They were eroded society. When we dehumanize, when we say someone with schizophrenia or substance abuse or bipolar disorder, ADHD, not only are they not trying, not only are they genetically flawed, but they're so flawed that they're not even part of our species. Isolation and extermination are not going to be far away. So the stakes are high with stigma. We're all human. We're all in this together. Mental conditions array on a dimension it's not us versus them. All of us are a little bit, if we weren't a little bit depressed sometimes, we wouldn't be human. We, we, we wouldn't grieve. All of us are scattered and disorganized at certain times. Many of us hear voices, but it's not part of the schizophrenia spectrum. Lifelong, with the understanding that we're all in this together, it's a sign of strength, not weakness, to ask for help, and that getting good treatment is probably the best antidote to stigma we can all become not only a more productive society economically, but a more humane society worldwide. Mm -hmm. And just talking about, you know, uh, furthering to to that point about how how people have been treated in the past. I know that Steve Hayes has also spoken about the bell curve um, and how that was used. You know, in actual fact, you know how Pearson's coefficient, you know, has been right. used as part of that as well. And it almost, you know, suggests that the tails of bell curves, you know, need to be you know, addressed when in actual fact, you know, they are the hard parts of life, but they are going to be, you know, 
because of neurodiversity, because right. of, 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 you know, uh, evolution and the like, you know, they might be the hard parts. Um, sometimes they are the celebrated parts, but either way, we need to treat them with the same respect that we do with everything else and remove the judgments, you know, and, and, and I like that category of, you know, being human because that does remove, you know, that, that, that the judgment of, and I think everyone can relate to that. And we've all seen it in our families. We've all seen it in our lives and, and, you know, whether it's from the mental well-being state, you know, the different seasons in our life um, or even on the physical where, you know, sadly we also see the great, great um you know pain that, that that we all end up going going through with our loved ones or ourselves with with you know different medical conditions as well but uh you know absolute pleasure uh, steve to to speak with you um you know to to go from really understanding the, the human condition and, and and normalizing it and removing the stigma and and leaving this sort of question out there about you know how do we go out and relate with uh you know with life in a different way and you know, ourselves too Nash, um, it's been my pleasure. I only wish we had another hour and a half to piggyback on the hour and a half we've just had. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. All the best. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review. Subscribe, share it via social media, and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources and just lastly if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team develop your experience and get into some exciting work come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out i'd love to hear from you